Welcome to Cato Audio for December 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Cato's President Peter Gettler explains why the case for liberty needs a moral component. Robert Zubrin makes the case for space. Cato's Chris Preble details the Trump foreign policy versus his predecessors. And economist Darren Asimoglu details his view of what it takes for liberty to emerge and to flourish. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The Jones Act is a federal law that governs shipping uh, among the U.S. states, and um, it's not a particularly good piece of legislation for reasons that we will learn in just a moment. We're talking with Inu Manik, a visiting scholar at the Cato Institute, and Colin Graybell, policy analyst at the Cato Institute. So, um, Colin, you've been digging deep into this uh, subject for a long time. Um, the Jones Act is a near 100-year-old law, and I got to say, the first time I think I ever heard of it was uh, five or six years ago, uh, recording for a Cato Daily podcast shortly after some problems that Puerto Rico was having. This was before hurricanes. It was just the regular problems that Puerto Rico is having with debt and spending. So uh, tell us why uh, the Jones Act is so problematic and why should uh, our listeners care? Well, let's review what the Jones Act is, first of all. The Jones Act, uh, we uh, use the Jones Act to refer to Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, which mandates that vessels transporting goods, uh, merchandise between two points in the United States have to meet four conditions. These conditions are that the ships have to be U.S. flagged and registered. They have to be at least 75% U.S. owned. They have to be at least 75% U.S. crewed with the remaining 25% uh, comprised of permanent residents, green card holders. And the ships have to be built here in the United States. So if we just go through those provisions one by one, uh, number one, it has to be U.S. flagged. Well, how many U.S. flagged ships are there? There are about 180 U.S. flagged ships uh, in the world. How many ships are there in the world? Something like 40,000. So right there, the amount of competition is dramatically reduced. But the, it, it goes even further because of those 180 ships, there are only 99 that are built here in the United States. So there are only 99 ships in the United States that are capable of transporting cargo between uh, two U.S. ports. So this is obviously much less competition. Um, you know, 99 ships from the world's largest economy. Of those 99 ships, uh, 57 are oil tankers. So we have 40-some ships to service the needs of the, uh, of the United States. Um, so if you have less uh, supply, less competition, and you have to buy these U.S.-built vessels, which can cost up to five times more than those built overseas. Well, you know, it only takes uh, an elementary understanding of economics to understand what happens when competition is reduced and the cost structure, the costs are increased. You're going to have very high shipping rates. You know, so how high? Well, you know, uh, anecdotal evidence suggests that uh, these 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 shipping rates can be anywhere from two to three times more than what you would pay with a foreign flagship. Uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in 2012 released a report that found that to ship a, a container of household items from New York to Puerto Rico was twice as expensive as the same, the same shipment to Jamaica or to the Dominican Republic. Uh, we found multiple instances of shipping oil to be up to three times more than using foreign flagships, even though they go shorter distances in some instances. So this is, this is higher transportation costs, and this just reverberates throughout the economy. Everybody needs transportation. 
uh, to you, Inu, uh, who faces the costs and benefits of uh, the Jones Act? I mean, if you go from 40,000 ships to fewer than 50 to service the largest economy in the world, uh, who benefits, who loses? Well, I would say the Jones Act is a perfect example of a law where you have very uh, dispersed costs and really concentrated benefits. So the people that are benefiting from this are really the people who have lobbied very hard to maintain restrictions on foreign vessels from being able to provide stripping services in the United States. So Shipbuilders uh, have benefited from the U.S. build requirement, in a sense, they, even though we can show that they haven't actually benefited because shipbuilding hasn't increased in the United States and has actually been on decline since the Jones Act was put into effect in 1920. And then also uh, we have shippers, shippers who essentially benefit because they have a captive market uh, in the Jones Act fleet. And this is essentially why they don't want things to change because they've invested in Jones Act vessels and any change to that would make them far less competitive, right? Uh, but then when you look at the costs, we have costs that are dispersed throughout the entire U.S. economy. And a lot of these costs are most felt by non-contiguous states and territories where we can really see the effects. And then we see it across the whole economy as well in terms of higher transportation costs and higher shipping costs. So when you look at places like Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, Guam, they really, really see an impact of the Jones Act because they're so dependent on marine transport and those costs are increasingly higher. So to you, Colin, of the people who benefit from this, what have uh, what have they said in response to this uh, broad effort here at the Cato Institute to get rid of the Jones Act? Well, surprisingly, they're not pleased. Um, Cato has increasingly featured in the debate about the Jones Act, and that's been reflected in, in some of the debate on Capitol Hill. Uh, there were hearings last year, I know, that Cato's uh, name was mentioned several times in some of these uh, hearings held about maritime matters and the Jones Act. Uh, we've, we had a, uh, an op-ed published against us in a prominent maritime publication earlier this year from a former CEO of a Jones Act carrier. Uh, that was just replete with errors uh, and and just flat out lies and untruths. Um, we are regularly attacked on social media. Um, they're, they're they're displeased because they've they've had the status quo. They uh, the Jones Act has largely gone unquestioned. It's been a almost a permanent feature of the U.S. landscape for nearly a hundred years, and they're not used to scrutiny and they they do not appreciate it. So, what's the best argument they put up there? So you hear a variety of arguments in favor of the Jones Act. Uh, you will hear arguments that it supports 650,000 jobs. Uh, the math behind that they will never show. Uh, they will claim that uh, there's a re uh, re consultants have produced reports showing this, but they will never uh, release those reports and show the math behind how they calculate that. Uh, they will say that it is um, but really they they cannot make the argument on economic grounds. Uh, every serious economist and every uh, group of of any standing from from the U.S. International Trade Commission to the uh, OECD that has examined the Jones Act, they invariably find that it is a net cost to the U.S. economy. So I th what invariably happens is that uh, the Jones Act proponents retreat to this national security argument. And this argument takes two forms. The first is that they say, uh, absent the Jones Act, our waters will be filled with foreign mariners, all of whom are potential terrorist threats. They We've had um, former... Jones Act, or Jones Act uh, officials, uh, senior officials of Jones Act companies say things like, 
and the Jones Act absence will have North Korean flagged ships on our internal waterways. Uh, you'll find ships from Pakistan, from Iran. Uh, you'll have terrorists up and down the Mississippi, et cetera, et cetera. This is a ridiculous argument. Uh, there is no prohibition in the Jones Act against foreign flagships being in US waters. Remember, all it says is they cannot transport goods between two US points. It doesn't say anything about their ability to be here. And in fact, foreign flagships are here. There are foreign flagships in our uh, coastal waterways. They go in and out of our ports every day, every minute. We are entirely or 99% dependent on foreign ships for international trade. They, they do go into our internal waterways. They go into the lower Mississippi River. They go into the Columbia River, head to Portland. But then the second argument is that uh, we need the Jones Act uh, to serve as a naval auxiliary basically in times of war. In times of war, the US military is dependent on US flag shipping to transport US supplies and equipment to where it's needed, wherever uh, the conflict happens to be. But as I showed in a recent paper, I think the Jones Act actually, at the very least, is an incredibly inefficient means of going about that. At the, at the worst, it's counterproductive to meeting those goals. If we just think about the theory behind the Jones Act, we, we want a, a vigorous, a vibrant US flag fleet to conduct uh, these, this transportation for the US military. And yet, we force them to buy ships that are five times more expensive, which totally defeats the purpose. Uh, that, of course, is meant to promote a shipbuilding sector, and yet we have neither. We have neither a vibrant shipbuilding sector, nor do we have uh, a fleet that's commensurate with, uh, I think, the, the needs of the US economy and, and the US military, frankly. So uh, let's take an example here, because I think there are some uh, maybe underappreciated issues for people who don't really follow shipping and how it works. If uh, a, you know a ship, let's say, is coming from a, a part of Asia and is go going to come to California, uh, there's not there's nothing stopping that ship from stopping in Hawaii, uh, dropping off goods, then going on to California, dropping off goods, picking up goods. Because frankly, they could pick up goods in Hawaii as well. Uh, and then going back with the goods for Hawaii on their way back to Asia, how does the Jones Act frustrate what would otherwise be that efficiency in uh, shipping goods uh, to and from various places using one ship? So yes, they can go from US port to US port, and they do go from US port to US port. That's not theoretical. This does happen. You will find foreign flagships that will come over from 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 uh, other port from foreign ports, and they will visit. Uh, say New Jersey, and then they will go down to Miami, and, and perhaps another port, and they pick up and drop off. But they do not pick up from New York and drop off in Miami. They can't do that, but they can pick up, uh, assuming the, the the cargo has a foreign destination, or they can drop off if it came from a, a, a foreign origin. And this is frustrating because this is a resource that cannot be used by Americans to transport goods. This is basically a conveyor belt that exists along our coasts that cannot be used by Americans. So what happens? You know, uh, as a result, I think we find increased traffic on our highways. The freight has to travel by alternative means. There are zero Jones Act container ships that operate along the East Coast, for example. It is impossible to put a, a uh, container on a ship in Boston and send it down to Miami, for example. That service does not exist. And yet there are plenty of foreign flagships that do go among these ports and Americans cannot use them. And I think when you look at how this affects average Americans, one thing to think about as winter is around the corner is when you think about uh, road salt. 
And we had this problem up in the East Coast a couple of years back when New Jersey was under a lot of snow. And basically, we need to ship some salt uh, down there to salt the roads. What could we do with that? Uh, nothing, because there was no Jones Act ship available to move that salt over there. And so it just waited and people were still stuck in the snow. This is a huge problem. I mean, this is something that people can feel and, and connect to and understand. It's a direct impact on their lives. But you often don't know that it's because of this 1920s law. But it does affect people every single day. And this is one of the practical implications of something like this. And in this particular example, it was salt. But this happens over and over and over again with many different products. For example, Puerto Rico is 100% dependent on foreign natural gas to meet its electricity uh, generation needs. It uses uh, natural gas for about one-third of its electricity generation and it's 100% foreign sourced because it cannot buy American natural gas because the ships do not exist. There are zero Jones Act uh, eligible liquid liquefied natural gas carriers in the Jones Act fleet. But it's not just LNG. There are zero asphalt carriers, for example, in the Jones Act fleet, which means Hawaii has to import 100% of its asphalt. Uh, the US is one of the world's actually largest exporters of asphalt, and yet we cannot transport to other parts of the United States. There are zero liquefied petroleum gas carriers. This means propane, butane. The US is the world's largest exporter of propane, and yet Hawaii has to import it from as far away as West Africa because the ships do not exist to transport it there. Uh, there are zero livestock carriers which means that when Hawaiian cattle ranchers want to send their cattle to the West Coast to feed lots and for processing, that they instead have to put them on so-called cowtainers. Uh, these are modified shipping containers. These are only used in the United States. You don't find these anywhere else because everywhere else in the world, they use dedicated ships for that purpose. This, again, is just symptomatic of the Jones Act's uh, fleet's inability to, to meet and service the needs of the U.S. economy. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about how... Um the secondary effects here, because if this is imposing costs on Americans who American consumers at the benefit of this very small group of people who own these ships, um, there there have to be some businesses that also support the Jones Act because they're getting they're the ones that end up moving a lot of this freight. So uh, you're you're talking about empty ships moving from place to place because they can't both pick up and drop off uh, at, at certain points. And it reminds me of a lot of the regulatory changes that were made during the Carter administration to shipping throughout the United States. That is empty boxcars moving from uh, one place to another when they were perfectly capable of picking up cargo and taking it back. So with respect to uh, the, the shippers, inter interstate shippers in the United States that are not ships, uh, who benefits there? Well, I think you can really see this uh, in the example of Puerto Rico. And here you can see that you've, in effect, created these oligopolies uh, because you only have a few companies that are able to service uh, the island. And when you look at what's happened there, you had a price-fixing scandal where people were convicted because of this, uh, because there's no transparency in how those prices are actually uh, created for shipping things. And even economist uh, Paul Krugman had said that 
you know, part of the reason that Puerto Rico is is having so many economic troubles is in part exacerbated by the Jones Act. And and this is a big uh, portion of it. So you have these few shipping companies that basically have Puerto Rico as their captive market, and they get to control the prices. And there's no way for people in Puerto Rico to be able to compare prices because they have no competition in that market at all. So in the Puerto Rico market, there are uh, two carriers that have 85% of the market of the shipping of the container capacity. In Hawaii, there are basically two carriers that serve Hawaii. That is Pasha Hawaii and Matson. In the Alaska trade, you have two carriers. You have Tote Maritime and you have uh, Matson. So we have duopolies and best case oligopolies all over the place. And again, the invariable result of this of, of reduced competition is going to be higher prices and, and ultimately that are borne by the consumers in these non-contiguous states and territories. So what about uh, people who ship uh, over land in the United States? It seems like they are picking up some of the slack here. You would think, so th- th- that's an interesting point. A lot of people ask, so do uh, the truckers and do the railroads support the Jones Act? Uh, and the, the, the honest answer is, I don't know. Um, in fact, I've heard an argument made that in, in some respects, trucking may benefit uh, from from Jones Act reform because ultimately they're in the transportation business and there are examples where maybe a truck could be loaded onto a ship and then you send the, 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 the truck down somewhere else and then offloaded and it could make their transportation more efficient. Um, so I, I think uh, you know the effects of of Jones Act reform on these sectors is ambiguous. Uh, you know, efficiency could be, could be a win win here for everyone. It's odd though that uh, and Colin, you and I have talked about this on the Cater Daily podcast a number of times. It's odd though that uh, a law that is aimed at protecting a U.S. based industry results in uh, not just less shipping, but you know, you would think that there would be uh, enormous gains to be had by engaging in that activity in the United States, shipbuilding, for example. You would think, um, but the, the problem with, with U.S. shipbuilding is that um, to, to be an efficient producer of ships, you need at least two things. You need specialization and you need scale. Uh, and to, to get that level of specialization, you need to build for the international market. You need to sell t- to the international market. And the Jones Act uh, discourages this. Why build in a competitive international marketplace when you have a captive market right here in the United States? So we have uh, U.S. shipbuilders that one year they'll build uh, one type of ship. The next year they build another type of ship. They build these ships typically in twos. If you look at the, some of the most recent ships built here in the United States, there were two ships built by the Philadelphia Shipyard. There are two ships currently under construction uh, by Keppel Ansel's shipyard in Brownsville, Texas. Two ships under construction in uh, in NASCO uh, San Diego's shipyard. In foreign shipyards, you'll build six ships at a time or more. Um, so you have limited scale. You can't spread your fixed costs uh, among many ships. You don't specialize. And as a result, we have we have ships that are up to five times more expensive than those built abroad. A ship that costs $50 million in other country costs $250 million here in the United States. We are engaged in uh, trade wars uh, around the world. And is, is there a reason to expect why, uh, you know, to the extent that the president of the United States is serious about imposing tariffs uh, repeatedly, uh, despite the claims from some people that he's at heart a free trader that's... Uh, pure balderdash. But 
the uh, is, is there a reason to believe that eliminating certain provisions of the Jones Act or getting rid of it wholesale would ease the effects of uh, tariffs that the, the president's trying to impose? I certainly think it would lead to greater efficiency uh, here in the United States. And let's say if you're a producer of some good, you know, we, we talk about uh, the agricultural sector has been in the spotlight uh, with the trade war because they've borne some of the brunt of this in the form of retaliatory tariffs. Um, one frustration about the Jones Act, I, I mentioned before, the inability for Americans to buy American products. Uh, one example of this is in Puerto Rico where there was a 2013 GAO report which found that um, Farmers there would buy, say, uh, fertilizer and animal feed from foreign sources instead of American sources because once you factor in the cost of transportation, it doesn't make any sense to buy American. It mentioned the importation of corn and potatoes from foreign sources instead of the United States despite our status as an agricultural superpower. And I think it's 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 no wonder that the American Farm Bureau in 2015 endorsed John McCain's effort to repeal the Jones Act because they recognize that this imposes significant costs in the agricultural sector, and it's not just agriculture. This, of course, is felt uh, across the United States economy. So I think uh, to the extent that it, it increases these efficiencies and increases new markets in the sense that they could actually sell to other Americans, that that that's a win and could ease some of the pain from from this trade war. Until the last year, there's really been this is not as as galling as as this law may be. There really hasn't been much action to uh, get rid of it. Is that right? Yes, uh, I would say the last real concerted effort to uh, make significant changes to the Jones Act was in the mid '90s. There was something called the Jones Act Reform Coalition that petered out around 1999, 2000 or so, and there it has been. And I think one one frustrating aspect of the Jones Act is that. No one challenges it. So it creates this air of invincibility and then no one wants to challenge it because they think it can't be touched. Um, and it's just this self-reinforcing uh, phenomenon where no one confronts it. So everyone thinks it can't be reformed. So, so then there's a further uh, disincentive to, to actually going after it. And I think here at Cato, we said, well, it's enough, enough. And uh, somebody has to do it. Why not us? So who uh, in Congress recently, uh, was it Mike Lee that introduced uh, a clean repeal bill? Mike Lee has introduced two uh, pieces of legislation that would address the Jones Act. The first was just a straight repeal bill, uh, as you said. And the second one was, uh, my understanding, it's more of a, a waiver-oriented uh, bill that would try to ameliorate um, those situations where Americans want to ship goods to other Americans and the ships don't exist. I think it's a pretty commonsensical uh, approach to say, well, if the ships don't exist, then let foreigners, foreign flagships do it. After all, literally no American will lose their job in that situation because these are not services currently being offered by Americans. Uh, and then also there's the prospect of some action in the House where Representative Ed Case of Hawaii has said that he intends to introduce a, a bill uh, to that would uh, ameliorate the effects of the Jones Act on his state. And in looking at the waivers, I mean, we can learn a lot from other countries as well and how they uh, use their own waiver systems because all our countries have cabotage rules as well. And in Canada, uh, one thing that you see there is when a ship is needed uh, and it's not within you know, the, the Canadian cabotage rules, what you can do is request a waiver for economic uh, grounds. So if you if you don't have anything, uh, you can say, look, uh, it's actually inefficient uh, and, and we need to have this ship and it doesn't exist. So can we please uh, get a foreign ship to do this? Uh, and yes, they grant waivers based on that. But in the United States, 
all of this is wrapped up in this national security argument. DHS is involved in all of these decisions. The Customs and Border Protection is involved. What you don't have is a discussion of the economic merits of this law. And that just is never part of any discussion of waivers. And I think Mike Lee's bill is trying to get us to a point to start discussing what is the economic cost and how do we ameliorate these problems? So the national security rationale for uh, keeping this law on the books, how well does that hold up? The Jones Act was passed in 1920, almost 100 years ago, and a lot has changed in that 100 years, including in the maritime sector. Uh, for example, you know the the Jones Act is premised on the idea that in time of war or national emergency, that we can rely upon uh, civilian ships to transport the military, uh, the military's men, its supplies, its equipment to where it's needed. And in fact, in um, but currently there are. The military no longer transports its men typically with ships. There are no such thing as a troop ship anymore. Uh, this is done by airplanes and including civilian airplanes that are not subject to a US build requirement. Um, and then the ships themselves have changed dramatically over time. It used to be the ship was pretty much a ship and they they transported, they were geared towards what's called break bulk uh, cargo of, of varying shapes and sizes. But now ships have become increasingly specialized in the commercial world that are geared towards certain types of cargo. For example, you have now containerized shipping that didn't exist back when the Jones Act was passed. Containerized shipping was uh, developed in the 1950s and 60s. We have the advent of roll-on, roll-off ships. On the one hand, the military likes roll-on, roll-off ships because they can drive their tanks right onto these ships and then drive them right off. But they've become even uh, more specialized. So you have roll-on, roll-off ships that are uh, devoted just to cars and trucks, for example. Well, a ship geared towards transporting a car or a truck is maybe not the same ship you need to transport a tank. It has uh, different designs. Uh, the, the decks uh, maybe don't have the necessary supports to carry to support a heavy tank like that. Um, so we see this increased specialization. What the commercial world needs and what the military needs are increasingly divergent. Um, something else we've seen since the, the Jones Act was passed is the increased globalization of the shipbuilding industry. Uh, we like to think that in exchange for the Jones Act's high cost, that at least we have this US shipbuilding capability sometime where we're not reliant on foreigners, but we are, very much so. Uh, Jones Act ships are invariably built using foreign designs, for example. The components that actually make these ships work, such as the engine, the propeller, some of the steering equipment, this is this is foreign. Uh, foreigners are the experts in the shipbuilding industry. It's kind of like the iPhone. Um, we we you know China assembles these these parts, but the components and the designs are all foreign, and we're kind of the China of shipbuilding, and that we just assemble these parts, but we do it at extremely high cost. Uh, so in time of war, we're still dependent on foreigners. We have not avoided that. Um, so th there have been lot, lots lots of changes since the hundred years, but the Jones Act does not in any way reflect uh, those changes, and it's really time for a reexamination uh, to see how well it aligns with our national security needs. Yeah, and I would make a broader point about national security as well and thinking about who we ask for help when we are in a crisis or when we have to go to war. Uh, we call upon our allies and they help us and they have been in many conflicts with us, have helped us during uh, many uh, you know, hurricanes and storms. But why is it that when we need a ship, we can't ask one of our allies for a ship uh, and they can't service our economy? It just doesn't make any sense when you think of it. Yes, you can go and fight a war with us and die with us, but you can't ship between two points in the United States. This is 
part of a big problem of how we think about national security and the Jones Act. When you have some of our strongest allies who are at the top of technological innovation and shipbuilding, why can we not buy their ships? This is a fundamental problem of the Jones Act that we have to address. And as many of our uh, foreign policy scholars here at the Cato Institute will say uh, up front in many conversations, trade is one of the most important tools of diplomacy and foreign policy that we have. Uh, Ian Umanek, a visiting scholar here at the Cato Institute, and Colin Graybow, policy analyst at the Cato Institute. They're both in the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. And you can find out more about the Jones Act at our website, Cato.org. The case for freedom must include the morality of human liberty. Cato Institute President Peter Gettler at an October New York City seminar detailed his view of liberty as a core element of a life well lived. We can never forget that our mission is a moral one. Cato and all of our supporters are involved in a great moral project. And I think one of the biggest mistakes we make in advocating for our beliefs and advocating for liberty is failing to make the moral case for it. And in doing this, we leave one of our most powerful, most convincing arguments in its holster. How's that for a Second Amendment reference? Um, you know, liberty is so awesome because it's superior both from a moral standpoint and a practical standpoint. You know, from a moral standpoint, you know, we have to encourage the, um, you know, the conditions that provide for human flourishing. We have to let everyone own and steward their own lives, free from the coercion that could take their property or tell them what to do or tell them how to live. And liberty also produces superior practical outcomes. You know, we know our, in nearly every arena, our health, education, prosperity, even our recreation, our leisure time is made better because of freedom. And uh, I think we make a mistake. I, was, I went to MIT, I wore a beanie with a propeller. Show me the numbers, show me the analysis, I'm convinced. And there's a criticism that libertarians are like that. And I think there's some truth to that, that we focus on, you know, what are the outcomes? So we get down in the weeds and we talk about how the minimum wage costs jobs and how our fiscal situation is unsustainable, how uh, um, the uh, trade increases prosperity and things like this. And I think in doing so, we allow those practical arguments that we find so compelling to crowd out, you know, the moral arguments, you know, for liberty. And I think that's just a huge mistake that we have to continually remind ourselves not to make. So what I wanted to do today is give you a brief reminder that on issue after issue after issue, you know, we are the ones that are uh, morally right. You know, we're on, it, it, Todd said it great, you know, it's interesting when these, we don't plan this, but these presentations kind of connect with one another. And Todd said that we should never concede the moral high ground. And I think that's so important because on issue after issue, you know, we stand with human dignity, 
and justice. We stand with allowing people to own, you know, to, to own their own lives. And if I could be so presumptuous, you know, we stand with what's right. I went to the motor vehicle department last Friday. I had to renew my driver's license. I texted my family when I was at the motor vehicle department and I said, I'm in the Soviet Union. <laughs> we are putting these children in the educational equivalent of the motor vehicle department. Isn't that immoral? We erect barriers, we allow the government to erect barrier after barrier to human flourishing. We create incentives that try to make people's decisions for them. Think about housing policy. Someone decided that it was a good idea to create incentives to make people buy homes instead of renting them. It's an interesting coincidence that the housing lobby agrees. But think about what the barrier this creates for people. You know, if you live in a part of, uh, you know, North Carolina where the furniture industry has been wiped out, or in Virginia where the textile industry has been wiped out, or West Virginia where coal, because of automation, or trade, or technology, and you've been pushed by bad policy into a, a house, and you can't escape because it's underwater, you know, we're not allowing the adjustment mechanisms that have to work, and we're trapping people, we're creating barriers. We're creating barriers. Those people can't move to America's greatest cities where there's so much opportunity because of zoning and land use restrictions. As Michael mentioned, Michael's research in the California project, there are estimates that as much as 50% of the rents in San Francisco are due to zoning and land use regulations that are designed to protect the property values of the affluent and shut out lower and middle income people. If these people are lucky enough to get a place where, to a place where there are people and jobs and opportunity, we shut them out of, in order to, to uh, create barriers that will eliminate competition for incumbent providers, we make them get a license. God forbid we get a bad haircut. Or the one I always love is in Florida where interior designers have to be licensed because God forbid one of us picks the wrong chintz pattern. <laughs> barriers to human flourishing are immoral. In all of these areas, we argue against this policy. We argue in favor of liberty. We're on the side of human dignity. We're on the moral side. In his new book, The Case for Space, Robert Zubrin tells the amazing true story of how hard-driving entrepreneurial ventures like SpaceX and Blue Origin have accomplished what was previously thought of only as a capability of major power governments, space exploration. He spoke at the Cato Institute in October. This, something that many of you may have seen online, uh, this is February 2018. This is the launch and landing of the Falcon Heavy. Now, uh, anyone who saw this no doubt thought it was cool, but if you don't know the background to this, you don't know how cool this really was. Okay, because in 2010, President Obama put together a blue ribbon committee uh, headed up by my old boss, Norm Augustine, the CEO of Lockheed Martin, to evaluate whether the Bush Moon Initiative was possible within acceptable uh, cost limits. And they came to the conclusion that it was not 
because according to them, development of a heavy lift vehicle would take at least 12 years and cost at least, wait for it, $36 billion. Now, Musk did it in six years at a cost of less than $1 billion. And to cap it all, the thing is three quarters reusable. So this was just a shot heard around the world. This is Sputnik, OK? And, uh, and, and what he had done was not merely introduce a very desirable aerospace system, but he had proven a principle, as uh, Chelsea said, that it is possible for a well-led entrepreneurial team to do things in a third the time at less than a tenth the cost that, that, uh, of things that previously it was thought that only the governments of major powers could do, and not only that, do things that they could not do at all, despite 60 years of trying. Okay? And with that, he has set off an international space race. Now, there, it had already been um, ginned up by his earlier successes. You have Blue Origin, the Jeff Bezos company, the Virgin Galactic, the Richard Branson company. But even companies led not by billionaires with discretionary cash in order to uh, become immortal through historic achievement, uh, but even by working engineers with no more means than most middle class people who've managed to get investment. Okay, so this is Rocket Lab, New Zealand company, founded by a working engineer, mobilized $300 million in investment, and they have reached orbit. Okay, this is not science fiction flakes. This is real stuff. It's really happening. New Zealand has reached orbit, not through its government. It has no space program, but through the initiative of private citizen and investors. Okay, and, uh, and because this race has been unleashed, this is, is, is going to be self-driving. First of all, Musk himself is, is remarkable. Okay, he, even as he has reduce the cost of space launch by a factor of five. That is, the cost of space launch went down a lot from Sputnik through the Apollo landing as we became competent in, in the various space flight technologies and pretty much developed a whole bag of tricks during that 12 years of the, uh, of the initial space race. Okay, and that was done by the governments. No, no two ways about it. Um, but they were serious. They got the job done. And they reduced the price of space launch from you know, millions of dollars a kilogram to $10,000 a kilogram. Uh, but there it stayed for 40 years until 2009, flatlined. But between 2009 and now, in the last 10 years, it's fallen from 10,000 a kilogram to 2,000 a kilogram. And e but Musk is, is even trying to make that obsolete. Okay, he's working on a new uh, uh, propulsion uh, launch system called Starship, which we'll talk about a little, um, which will be fully reusable and will knock down the cost of space launch by another factor of three. So we're headed towards $700 a kilogram or even $500 a kilogram. And the cheaper launch is, the more launches there are going to be. That's elementary economics. It's cheaper, more people will do it. Last year, there were about 100 satellite launches in the whole world. SpaceX got 24 of them. They got a quarter of the launch. This is a one medium size, actually small launch company compared to most launch companies. Got a quarter of the world market and really the majority of the world market that was open for bids because the, most of the rest was China or Russia or something. You couldn't compete for it at all. Um, now, because of the lowering of launch cost, I think very quickly we're going to see 200, 300 satellite launches a year. 
that in turn will contribute to further lowering of, of launch costs um, as the uh, cost of launches spread out over more launches. But also, it will contribute to the lowering of spacecraft costs because they will be being produced in more numbers. And furthermore, the designers of spacecraft will be less conservative. Um, for the past half century, the, the prevailing wisdom among spacecraft designers is don't use anything that hasn't been used before. Because the launch is so expensive, you don't want to risk your whole spacecraft for some 20% improvement in some system. Okay? So it's like the person you know, who won't see any movies he hasn't seen before. You, know, you saw The Wizard of Oz when you are kids, good movie. Okay? Play it safe from there on, nothing else. Um, it, it's not the way to get a broad um, uh, education. Uh, and so, but now you're going to have this. So then there is an, another revolution that has been going on, uh, really driven by developments outside the space community, but, uh, but now starting to been take advantage of, which is in spacecraft miniaturization. We're now seeing micro spacecraft, 10 kilogram spacecraft that can do things that previously it took a, a thousand kilogram spacecraft to do. And not only are they much smaller and lighter and therefore cheaper to launch, they're also cheaper to build. They're million dollar, two million dollar spacecraft instead of hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's another way that will facilitate the opening of space. Now, I do believe though that if we're going to make space travel comparable to air travel, okay, you know. Air travel, like from here to Los Angeles, maybe $5 a kilogram, not $500 a kilogram. Okay? Um, how do we get there? You can't do it with 300 satellite launches a year or something like that. But reusable launch vehicles opens up a new market altogether, which is surface-to-surface -surface flight on Earth. You know, for the past 3,000 years, people have made money on the ocean. And some have made money actually taking wealth from the ocean, for instance, by fishing or sponging or something. But far more wealth has been uh, developed uh, on the ocean by using the ocean as a global dro low drag medium for commerce. The ocean connects every port to every port on Earth with a lower drag medium than is available on land in general. And that's where the serious money in, in, in uh, maritime activity has been. Well, space is a zero drag medium collecting every point to every point. And you can travel from anywhere on Earth to every other place on Earth in less than an hour if you go through space. This, of course, is unthinkable with expendable vehicles, um, but it, it becomes uh, rational with, uh, uh, conceivable anyway, with reusable vehicles. And uh, I've run the numbers. Uh, now, of course, we won't see this everywhere to everywhere. It probably is going to have to be from ports so you can launch offshore and land offshore so not have all the noise and of rockets in the city. But um, the Starship, if it was used as a uh, transport of this kind, um, I worked the business case out, and they probably could make this thing work with a ticket price, Los Angeles to Sydney, of uh, $20,000. Now, that is more than I've ever paid for an airplane ticket. Okay, but that is the price of a first-class ticket, Los Angeles to Sydney, right now. And all those people get for that money is a tablecloth, a free drink, and... Um, well, that's what they get. And the, uh, um, whereas this, you're getting there in less than an hour instead of in 15, and you're getting half an hour zero gravity and the stars are spaced out your window. Okay, that could be. All right, and now, instead of hundreds of flights per year, we're talking hundreds of flights every day. Okay. Now, 
And as they become more common, uh, well, if you get a bigger market like this, then you start making space craft uh, uh, um, components at costs of other things. You know, a, a rocket engine is less complex than your car. But your car costs $20,000 or something, a rocket engine, you're not going to get for less than millions. Um, why? Because one is a mass production item and the other isn't. Um, and, but if you start producing rocket engines not in ones or twos, but in thousands, tens of thousands, then they become cheaper. And all the other flight systems, same thing. Now, and this will open up the um, way for orbital commerce. You know, things like orbital research labs, even orbital manufacturing, which were demonstrated in principle on the space station, but could not remotely be commercial because of the tremendous cost of the space shuttle and also the bureaucracy of the space station. But now if you're talking about cutting the cost of access to orbit by an order of magnitude, and furthermore, that means that there'll be private space stations, which won't put up four years of red tape before you can fly there your experiment on it, and so forth. You're going to start seeing that kind of stuff. So I think we can see lots of orbital activity. As a candidate, Donald Trump said the prevailing American foreign policy consensus was a complete and total disaster. He vowed to shake the rust off of American foreign policy and promised that his administration would be guided by putting American security and American interests above all other considerations. In the new Cato book, Fuel to the Fire, how Trump made America's broken foreign policy even worse and how we can recover, the authors show how the Trump administration has remarkable continuity with previous administrations. Chris Preble is among the authors of the book. He discussed the Trump foreign policy in October. I go back to Trump's uh, major foreign policy address at the Mayflower Hotel on April 27, 2016. In that speech, he said, among other things, that since the Cold War, quote, foolishness and arrogance led to one foreign policy disaster after another, unquote. He promised to look for talented experts with new approaches and practical ideas, not those who have perfect resumes but very little to brag about except responsibility for a long history of failed policies and continued losses at war. And I put emphasis on losses at war because I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. He also said... No country has ever prospered that failed to put its own interests first. Both our friends and enemies put their countries above ours, and we, while being fair to them, must do the same. So that last phrase you may recognize, that's the essence of America first. That's a phrase that Trump first uttered during that speech in April of 2016, but that has been repeated a number of times since, including in his administration's national security strategy, which was issued in December of 2017. The, the strategy is called an America first national security strategy. So whether he knew it or not, uh, Donald Trump was assailing what Samuel Huntington at the dawn of the post-Cold War era called primacy. Primacy, that's the dominant foreign policy paradigm under both Republican and Democratic presidents ever since. Uh, there was a famous document, a draft Pentagon guidance in 1992 that elaborated the goals of this post-Cold War foreign policy. 
the object was to prevent the reemergence of a new rival capable of challenging U.S. power in any vital area, and those vital areas are generally thought to be uh, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. Uh, the U.S. would do that by retaining preponderant military power, not merely to deter attacks against the United States, but also to discourage potential competitors, including even longtime allies like Germany and Japan, from even aspiring to a larger regional or global role. And that's, again, a direct quote. Um, so that was the plan uh, and, and the vision. And in the book, in Fuel to the Fire, we trace the history of how this actually played out in practice since. Uh, the highlights, or lowlights, uh, if you prefer, include numerous foreign military entanglements, large and small, from Somalia to Bosnia to Kosovo to Afghanistan to Iraq to Libya and now Syria. Uh, and then we explain, uh, we sort of survey quickly this, this 20 or 25 year period, and then we explain why these failures abroad stem in large measure from the flaws inherent in primacy as a grand strategy. Uh, I'll call attention to, two, to three in particular, uh, three flaws in primacy. Uh, the first is a tendency to exaggerate dangers in order to mobilize and sustain public support for protracted overseas adventures. Second, an overuse of the military at the expense of the many other instruments of American power and influence. And third, a persistent burden-sharing problem which had steadily eroded public support for U.S. foreign policy over time. Now, Donald Trump spoke mostly of the third problem, free riding. But he seemed content to solve that through better deal-making and negotiation, his uh, famous art of the deal. And so most recently, we've seen this play out in his claim, uh, false, uh, his claim that Saudi Arabia will pay for the deployment of additional U.S. troops to the kingdom for example. But there are other signs that Donald Trump's critique of U.S. foreign policy is different from ours. For example, he plays into public fears, especially of terrorism, and he boasts of dramatically increasing U.S. military spending, uh, spending and even of expanding U.S. foreign wars, which suggests that he isn't really critical of the U.S. wars per se, but rather the manner in which they've been fought, or even more specifically, he's mad that we're losing, uh, but not winning. But that doesn't mean he's necessarily opposed to the wars per se. Um, and I think that really plays into primacy's flaws. Uh, let me just read one passage, and then I'll, I'll kick it over to John. Um, as we say in the book, the track record alone should have prompted some reflection on U.S. foreign policy. After all, while the United States of America is obviously a powerful country, it is not omnipotent. It hasn't discovered a magic formula for deploying force with such surgical precision that it can easily shape the international system in a way that works for everyone's benefit and harms no one. With respect to U.S. efforts at regime change, for example, Admiral Mike Mullen, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, noted in 2016, we're zero for a lot. Uh, military historian Andrew Basevich similarly concludes that having been at war for virtually the entire 21st century, the United States military is still looking for its first win. Unsurprisingly, others around the world don't trust the United States to perform the role of disinterested global policemen. Many, in fact, don't even believe U.S. leaders' professions of good intent. 
But let me close with this passage. For the most part, we write, U.S. leaders mean well. They are often motivated by a genuine desire to shape the international system in ways that are conducive to peace and prosperity. But they err in believing that they have the capability to do great things, and they end up causing harm. By privileging the military over other instruments of U.S. power and influence, primacy undermines Americans' safety. Achieving liberty requires a constant struggle between the state and society that strikes a balance between the elite and citizens and between institutions and norms. That's part of the argument presented in The Narrow Corridor, States, Societies, and the Fate of Liberty. Darren Asimoglu, co-author of the book, spoke at the Cato Institute in October. What The Narrow Corridor emphasizes is not only that this is something that requires a balance between state and society, not only that it's narrow, which means that that balance is fragile and, and it needs to really be hit just right, otherwise you're going to get into this, the, 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 uh, the, the orbit of either the despotic leviathan or absent or very weak state institutions, but also that liberty is a process. And that is the uh, idea communicated by the fact that there are arrows that are going to higher levels of state capacity and powers of society. So society needs to become better organized at the same time that states become more capable and more, uh, uh, more able to impose laws, organize certain aspects of the economy, and provide public services. That is a process. Now, it is actually quite critical that all of these happen simultaneously. If the states became very powerful, that would disrupt the balance. And if society became not uh, subject to the laws or the structure imposed by the states, that would also start undermining aspects of liberty. So the balance is quite important for this. So what maintains the balance? Well, it's this competition cooperation process between state and society. And that's what we call the Red Queen effect uh, after Lewis Carroll when, uh, or Alice in the Wonderland when uh, Alice is explained by the Red Queen that it takes all the running in this country to remain where you are. So it's a process like that that the states are continuously going to get more interventionist. They're going to become more involved in public domains in uh, uh, public service provision, in law enforcement. But at the same time, society has to run together with the states in order to increase its own capacity to meet the challenges provided by changing economic, social, and political conditions, as well as the challenges posed by the state's increasing power. But this competition then enables cooperation. So trust in institutions, just like the uh, protest that I showed in the previous slide, is actually a recent phenomenon. People trusting that institutions are there to serve them, the police or the security forces or the judiciary actually is responsible for looking after their own welfare. That's also a very recent uh, sort of idea. And that trust has its origins in the Red Queen effect because if you could not keep up with the state, you would not trust it either. Now, this account really puts not only critical emphasis on the state's capacity expanding, but the suspicious activity, suspicious attitude 
that society, regular people have towards the state. That's actually very, very common. If you look at uh, stateless societies, one of the very common themes is that there is a complete fear of political hierarchy. Anybody who accumulates power, anybody who tries to tell you what to do, the stateless societies have a whole range of norms to deal uh, with that and often to stamp it out, to get rid of it, because that sort of dominance they see as a threat to their liberty, however meager that liberty is in a, state, in a society without economic conditions that could enrich them, without laws, without conflict resolution, and so on. But it's also there in the critical phases of the building of the state capacity. So what I'm showing you here is one of the most important uh, tools for controlling state power that Athenians had. This is uh, Ostrakon, a piece of shard. And after Cleisthenes' reforms, the, uh, the suspicious attitudes that the Greeks had towards power, which had already characterized their earlier reforms, for example, under their Archon Solon, became institutionalized in the name of an ostracism law. According to the ostracism law, uh, the Greeks would every year decide, Greek citizens would every year decide whether to have an ostracism. And if they, and ostracism comes from Ostrakon, the, the word for uh, shard. And if they decided to have an ostracism, each Greek citizen would write the name of, uh, of somebody on a piece of broken pottery. And then whosoever name was represented most would be exiled from Athens for 10 years. And this is from the ostracism of Themistocles. Themistocles is the uh, closest thing that Athens has to a hero. He saved Athens twice. He was the one who understood first the Persian threat. He organized the army. He led the army in, uh, in an amazing battle against the, the Persians, saving uh, uh, saving Athens, and then he identified Sparta as the real enemy for Athens, and he fought for that for quite a long time. But at some point, the Athenians thought that he was getting too big for his britches, he was getting too powerful, too influential, and they thought that was inconsistent with Athenian democracy, so they ostracized him. So this is actually quite a telling story, because it captures what really made Athenian democracy and the amazing flourishing of liberty that happened in Athens. It wasn't a state imposition, and it wasn't just a uh, sort of a libertarian idea that society does something. It was the simultaneous evolution of state capacity and society's tools for controlling the state. Both Solon and Cleisthenes and many of the critical leaders of Athens simultaneously weakened the elite and strengthened state institutions, while at the same time providing new tools based on existing norms and political traditions of the Greeks in order to get society more involved in politics. With more than 6 million copies in print, the Cato Institute's pocket constitution containing both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States is one of the most popular editions of our nation's founding documents. It has been held up by senators at press conferences and by representatives during floor debate, found in federal judicial chambers across the country, and it's appeared at conferences on constitutionalism across the globe. And you can buy yours today at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next year.